Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined this week by David Moser, Academic Director of the CET program here in Beijing. How are you on this crisp and lovely fall afternoon? Oh, feeling groovy, Kaiser. Because I may be anachronistic. Twenty-nine was the 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 the, the, the PM two point five reading as we had coffee earlier. Yeah, uh, lovely. The same age as the woman sitting next to us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Uh, anyway, uh, I have a question for you, David. If you had to come up with a mission statement for this little podcast of ours, for the Cynical Podcast, what, what, what would you, what would you, how would you encapsulate it? Hmm. Well, China is a very complex place, right?、Uh, so I suppose we try to provide、uh, some framing for certain events, so that people can have a better understanding. Maybe point focus in on certain things that might be useful. But I, I think maybe your presence here.、Uh, Uh, makes its function more to sort of go against some prevailing narratives that we see. Sure, yeah. I mean, I definitely want to make at least people aware of the narratives that are in place. I mean, both Chinese narratives and and、uh, you know those that dominate in mostly English-speaking countries,、right. where so many yes, of our、right. listeners are. Some which may be、uh, implicit. Right.、Uh, yeah. so、I think the, the the length and the format and the fairly kind of focused. Focus of the show, focus, the narrow focus of the of the show, allow for unpacking of more complicated issues. Yeah, so、right. I mean, maybe it's like our mission statement is to move listeners toward a, a both broader and deeper understanding of China, and looking not only at events as they unfold, but also the historical and cultural context out of which they grow. Right. Right. So. With that in mind, I think、uh, we're delighted to welcome to the show today Foka Obama, who is a veteran Dutch journalist with Der Volkskrant, who、uh, is a very popular newspaper in the Netherlands.、Uh, he's the author of the brand new book China and the West: Hope and Fear in the Age of Asia, which I think was undertaken very much in the spirit of this podcast.、Uh, many of the same same goals. So, Foka, welcome to Sinica, and congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. So, would you agree? This is this is the spirit of in in which the book was undertaken.、Uh, yes, absolutely.、Uh, the origins of the book、uh, are in go back to two thousand and eight when I first visited China, and I was just impressed by the dynamism and the energy of the place, and、um, it compared uh, positively uh, with、um, my own country and Europe in general, where the、uh, Credit crisis just had started, and、uh, pessimism was uh, uh, largely spread, and also very negative attitude towards China.、Um, you know, that China was going to take over Europe and、uh, was going to dominate the world, and this would be a very bad thing. And I thought, you know, we we need to sort of cool down and and think、uh, straightforwardly about you know what what is exactly the impact of China the rise of China which is of course the the main event of this uh, century uh, on our part of the world and so I tried、uh, a balanced approach in this book and in that sense it's、uh, it's it's like、uh, your show oh great、um, I, I have to admit that、uh, I don't read any languages besides English and Chinese so I don't really Think that I'm I'm I'm、um, in a position to speak on what the the narratives are that dominate European coverage. I don't read German or or French or Italian or Spanish or any or or, or for that matter Dutch. Of course,、uh, I mean Google Translate only takes you so far.、Um, 
what, how would you characterize? You said you know they're they're coming for us. They're uh, they're they're going to to uh, you know deprive us of economic opportunities. What are, what are some of the other narratives that you think dominate in discussions in 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 European media? Well, I, I think uh, underlying most stories is is a, a sense of fear for China, and uh, I mean it goes back to this this old yellow peril uh, view of China, you know, this 1.3 billion people and uh, when they are moving towards us, you know, what's going to happen to us? Um, and and you see that in every story, for instance, on, on takeovers, uh, you know, there has to be only one single Chinese businessman taking over a Dutch uh, soccer club and then uh, everybody starts uh, to get a little uh, shaky about <laughs> it. And uh, it's, it's completely exaggerated, you know, if there's activity of uh, China in uh, the Rotterdam uh, harbor, then, then it's the same thing. Or if uh, Chinese take over French uh, wine chateaus, you know. You yeah, which is a, a large part of your book is devoted to that, that you reported out of Bordeaux, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a nice place to be, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But as a reporter, uh, it's kind of interesting that you, you chose this, this stance or this focus for the book because... It, it seems to me a lot of reporters, uh, some of the ones that we might go against their prevailing narratives here on the show, uh, are more engaged in sort of producing articles that go with the narrative because that's how they get published and that makes their editors happy. Yeah. But you you in the book, and you seem to be expressing a feeling that you have felt pushback against what you, the, another narrative you were trying to pre present in the Dutch press, right? Yes, well, the, the thing is, I, I had this opportunity of having a sabbatical year and then you have the also the opportunity to stand back a little from what you're doing in day daily day, life. Yeah, right. And and so I could see, you know, the way Western media were behaving. Uh, and I have to uh, emphasize, it's not only against uh, China. This, this oh. the, You know, it's looking for, f for problems and for conflicts, which is general, I think, to uh, Western media. And uh, I mean, to have critical journalism is, of course, very important, but... Uh, for a change, I also was interested in being uh, more constructive, and um, uh, so that, that's why I also started to criticize my own uh, fellow journalists. Mm -hmm. mm. Can I ask one other question? Of course. About in the, since I assume, I always assume that the European discourse is pretty much the same as the Anglophone discourse, but maybe maybe not. One phenomenon that we have, that we talk a lot, a lot about, are are these division into two two parties or two camps of what we call dragon slayers and panda huggers. And we have these certain authors that we could list who would fall into one or the other category. Yeah. And it's also in academia because you could list the same sort of professors who speak on all the podcasts and things. Um, I won't name names right now, but do you have the same phenomenon there in academia as well as journalism? Or? Yes, I think you, you can make that uh, distinction. And uh, while my effort is trying not to be in one of the, these right. categories and, and stay uh, as objective neutral, yeah. uh, as, as uh, much as possible. Uh, I have to admit, nowadays I'm interviewed uh, because of my book by Chinese journalists and I'm giving sour and sweet comments on both China and the West. And it, they, they like sweet and sour yeah, here. I was going to say. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, but th they, they tend to... Tasty cuisine. They, they tend to take uh, the, the, the sweet remarks on China and the sour remarks on the West. And that is, then you don't get the whole picture. So. It's always a danger, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean it's you're gonna, yeah. anything that you say is going to be cherry-picked by the Chinese media and, and they'll, yeah, they'll be but very I mean selective. That, that, that's, that's, of course, something we in the West do as well. I mean, uh, that, that's not really different. The difference is, of course, that behind the Chinese journalists, there is the Chinese state. 
Right. Now, you use this word, this phrase, the West, uh, to designate presumably a, a set of nations that have a shared set of political or maybe economic norms. And uh, it's something that I, I very studiedly avoid using. I, I don't. I tend not to deploy the word the West or the phrase the West. Uh, you don't experience any kind of pushback against this idea that, that there is a West. I mean, you know, you, you, you try using it uh, sometime in a group of, 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 of academics or in a group of journalists. If you talk about the Western media, the, the hackles are immediately up. I yeah, mean, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that's a difficult argument. I mean... Can you talk about China then? You know, because well, China, 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 China is a definable nation state. I yes, mean, okay, but and, and can you talk about Europe? Because Europe is also, you know, we are twenty nine nations and right. it's, it's very divided. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, in fact, it, the, the the book originally was called uh, China and Europe, mm. um, but my English publisher they didn't like very much Europe in the title of the book uh -huh. uh, for commercial reasons. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it has been brought into China and the West, okay. and, and uh, th that's the main reason I speak of the West. Okay, okay. I, I think also uh, some an, a journalist like Foka is to be forgiven because the, the, this is a category the Chinese themselves <laughs> tend to deal with much more than even we do. Right, and Chinese that's usually and when you encounter the the, the, the hackle raised exactly. Thing, like and as we mentioned over lunch, some Chinese even consider Jap Japan to be part of the West. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a, yeah, there's an argument to be made for that. It yeah. is, after all, a liberal democratic, uh, you know, uh, uh, capitalist state. Uh, but let's. Um, I, I want to understand better who the reading, uh, the intended reading audience of this is. Who do you imagine is going to see this book and 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 want to buy it? Yeah, well, it's it's not meant for specialists. Right. Of, first of all, it's the general public. It's it's basically the kind of public I'm used to write writing for this this newspaper. You have it in Dutch as well. Oh, yes, there is a 2013 edition which is called China and Europe. Okay. And, oh, and, and okay. So, I see. So. Um, it's it's a very broad public. Everybody who's asking the question, you know, what does this rise of China mean uh, for us? Mm -hmm. And and, mm -hmm. and uh, I think it's also interesting for Chinese people because it gives you an idea of how we in the West or Europe. Let's think go about ahead and it. use the West for now. I mean, <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we decided that that's uh, we're going to be comfortable. With. Yeah, I mean, you set out to do something. I think that's just very ambitious and, and very praiseworthy. Uh, you're not just trying to build a more nuanced understanding of, of, of China realities here on the ground, but also you want to urge readers toward uh, a better awareness of their own prejudices, their own biases, what you call pride and prejudice in the book, right? Which I think is a, an interesting use of the phrase. So the whole first chapter that you talk about, um, reckoning with your own prejudices, mm -hmm. your own you know, pride in your European systems, the institutions and, and the values you have as a Western European. Um, you, you also talk about a kind of sudden epiphany that you have while attending an otherwise very boring conference in Brussels, and yet, yet, yet another one of these, when a cranky Chinese professor just starts in on a rant. Was that really, I mean, was that a narrative device or was that a real awakening moment for you? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that, that was a real awakening moment. And it, I remember that, that moment very uh, um, vividly, clearly, <laughs> vividly, because um, everybody watching him, and it, it was a mixture of, of uh, European uh, and, and Chinese specialists, they, they were a bit confused because he was so uh, outspoken yeah. uh, and negative on Europe. Which is, of course, well, as we felt it, an un-Chinese <coughs> way of behaving. 
mm -hmm. which is always diplomatic and polite and you know uh, hoping for mutual understanding and win-win situations etc and he was completely against that so uh so uh, for me as a beginner in, in in china knowledge it was quite astonishing to see someone so outspoken and negative about uh, europe so and this was in what year was this what year was this this, this was uh, 2009 or something. Okay. Like I mean, because, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people would say that there was a, a major change in the year 2008, that mm -hmm. 2008 really marked the watershed. <clears throat> and there was this, you know, very kind of l heavily freighted symbolic moment. It, you know, the Beijing Olympics happened. You know, they opened on August 8th. They, they, and then just literally three weeks after the closing of, of the closing ceremony of the Beijing Games, was the Lehman Brothers collapse. Absolutely. Right, yeah. and so uh, these were two kind of, you know, it was yeah. a, a, a passing of the torch maybe in, in the minds of some people, and that you, you, you suddenly heard a lot more of that kind of swagger, uh, that, that uh, assertiveness, that almost, you know, uh, pugnaciousness coming, coming out of China. Would you, would you agree that that was kind of a, an inflection point? I absolutely agree, and I think at that point, uh, Chinese authorities uh, really thought you know, we we are the future, and and uh, look at uh, the West; uh, they are going down the drain. And uh, I mean, I have to be honest: we in the West thought the same. You know, we we thought, you know, with the credit crisis. I mean, we it was so unpredictable what would happen. So uh, we somehow lost our confidence uh, then. Mm -hmm. I think uh, events afterwards, you know, make clear that the picture is not that uh, black and white. Right. Of course not. Uh, it's, it seems to me, and the larger, even pre nineteen uh, two thousand and eight, the, the the arc of this has been from China from be, China thinking of itself as as a country or a civilization state or whatever that was joining the geopolitical order and becoming a part of it and a, and a an equal or even you know superior player to a very different uh, sort of mentality that we have now under Xi Jinping, which is. We're not just joining the, the geopolitical order. We are creating our own new geopolitical order. You know, yes. creating a, you know, one belt, one road. We're, we're we're bypassing the geopolitical order and, and making forging a new model. Uh, you know, this, this this idea of a new model. Do you see that as part of the, you know, what, it's at least a sub subtext for the Chinese. Uh, focus of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's very interesting. We in the West have been asking for a responsible stakeholder all the time and the right. a more active uh, attitude of China. So. Now we get it, and uh, <laughs> uh, of course um, we, we are, you know, not sure whether this is what we asked for. And uh, <coughs> I think AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, is a very interesting example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we've done a, a show on that. It's uh, yeah, where 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 um, uh, I think China did a, diplomatically a very interesting uh, move. And the U.S. Uh, failed to understand uh, the, the attractiveness of the Chinese proposition. Um, at the same time, you should not exaggerate the importance of the AIB. I mean, geopolitically, there is also, of course, uh, the Pacific. And I think in that issue, China is not moving so smartly as uh, they did on AIIB. Mm -hmm. uh, much of your book is, is concerned with these kind of 
dueling senses of superiority, mm-hmm. right? That's that's a, a theme that that threads through through uh, of two of two civilizations, really. Um, each kind of supposing a kind of exceptionalism for itself. Uh, so there's this young friend of mine here, a guy named Greg Blandino. Uh, he works for an, on an internet company here, and uh, he once commented. And I thought it was really, really kind of you know preternaturally wise to say he, that he was as- answering a question on Quora about you know which culture is more you know has a greater sense of superiority and he he said that you know the u.s and china are both really big on on exceptionalism i mean he wasn't talking about the west he was talking about the united states in particular uh but of, of very different kinds of exceptionalism american exceptionalism claims that its values are universal that it should be the norm and the form for the entirety of the world while china's exceptionalism is rooted in a very different belief one that's perhaps equally arrogant that china's culture china's values are unique are inimitable and unexportable and, and not exportable yeah. right i mean what do you think of this idea i mean is this something that you you encountered that might resonate with you yeah i i, I think uh, i agree and and uh, the u.s is is uh, absolutely convinced of its of of, of the value, values and of course me as a european i share these values uh, as well but uh the U.S. is just sending out this signal all the time that this is the case, and and uh, we we are less in that habit. Europeans, uh, you Europeans we, are we, less, yes, yeah, yeah, in Europe. Um, and and uh, China, I think the interesting thing is it's 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 a civilization on its own. But um, what comes with this feeling of superiority is also a feeling of inferiority. Yeah, you, you talk about that a lot. Also, I mean, the, I I remember in in particular you were talking about somebody who's studying Chinese communities in Europe. And says that they were very much characterized by this simultaneous superiority complex and inferiority complex. Right? Exactly, exactly. And I, I think if you have to understand the the Chinese mindset, I mean, these two notions have come into play, and and uh, you see that that this inferiority complex, which is of course driven by the the century of humili- humiliation in the nineteenth century. Um, is is uh, very much there, and it also makes you know for a kind of feeling of revenge and wanting to mm. do right. better. It's our turn again, right? <laughs> yeah, this this time it's our turn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, one of the, what are the the senses of superiority in those communities he was talking about? You know, the the work ethic, for example. Absolutely, is, right. Um, this is something I remember. You know, our, our our co-host Jeremy, who unfortunately couldn't join us right now, was um, he's always talking about how. Uh, <laughs> You know, he's he's sort of shocked at, at going to Europe and businesses that close at 5 p.m. Uh, or that close on weekends or on you know in in Southern Europe, especially on every goddamn feast day for the the, 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 the Catholic Church has, and, yeah. and the, you can't you can't how can they compete? You, know, you go to China and banks are open on weekends and business many businesses are 24 hours yeah. and, and nobody would think of them yeah it's but but uh, what, what I would like to point out then is that the w- when you look at the hour productivity so the productivity per worked hour in European countries is far higher far higher yes than absolutely. in China so maybe China should come a bit more. Oh, I agree. Uh, to the European uh, as a working stiff, I absolutely <laughs> agree. More <laughs> vacation time, I mean, more work-life balance. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, the other, another theme that that's that's I think are an important one that we should we should maybe spend some time unpacking. Um, you know, you look like you said at that nineteenth century, may, may, mainly at this sort of uh, you know, narrative of humiliation at the hands of imperial powers that China suffered for for so long. And something I think is like familiar to the point of banality to China watchers. Now, history is obviously uh, very important toward an understanding of contemporary Chinese attitudes. But um, in your book, you also urge people, like I said, to, to appreciate their own historical legacy, their own uh, privileges, as you say, uh, how it, it shapes the lens through which they view China. So w- what are, do you see as the main elements of, of the Western historical experience that you think have created these kinds of distortions when they view China? What are the, 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 the chapters in, in or, or what, 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 is, what is, where are well, the, the little, where's the lack of awareness? I certainly have yeah, ideas. Well, this, I, so. I, the, it, yeah, you have to point out the lack of awareness, right. most of all. I mean, um, for instance, the, the century of humili- humiliation, I, I think that the average uh, European, uh, you know, they don't know what you're talking about. They, hmm. they, they, they completely forgot about this black chapter mm-hmm. of uh, European colonialism in China. Whereas here it is very much a vivid thing, but we, we ignore it and we basically reduce China to, you know, an opportunity to reach a big market uh, for companies. Interesting. Uh, but there is very, very little uh, intellectual curiosity towards, you know, the, the, the Chinese culture, the Chinese political system broader, you know, it's, it's, it's always simplified. For instance, the political system, we simplify it to... <coughs> authoritarian human rights violators who right yeah now. but 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 also uh, given the the economic success of China uh, you know an effective uh, way of dealing with the economy uh, whereas if you're closer to China and, and you're inside it you know that there is a real problem of you know the way the Chinese authorities are dealing with their economy and that there should be fundamental change but when you're really far back, you know, you think, okay, these guys, they have 10% growth, 7% growth. That's fantastic. You know, that's so, so it's, it's very simplified. It might be worth just mentioning the thing that might be a cliche by now is Susan Shirk's uh, observation when she came out with her book, China, a Fragile Superpower, mm-hmm. that when she told her, her uh, American friends the title of her book, they, they said, fragile? <laughs> yeah, exactly. how, how is it fragile? And when yeah. she told her Chinese friends the title, they said, superpower? We a superpower? No. <laughs> so, right. I mean, Although that, it would be very different now. It would be very different now. I think if you were to talk to people, mm-hmm. uh, th- you know, right now the narrative is about Chinese fragility. You look look at the, the the papers. They're full of stories about the crack up, about you know the, the economic disorder. Oh, you in the West that there is a, a mention. That's of right, but no, and also if you talk to Chinese now, well, they always about, have that. That's the point. They always thought of themselves as fragile. No, no, I'm talking but, about I'm talking about in the West. The narrative is about oh, that's what okay. you know, yeah. economic decline in China, right. about mm-hmm. the end of this period of growth. You know, I mean, yes, Gordon right, Chang yes. is riding high in the saddle again, and I mean, uh, uh, there's a lot of this declinist narrative now being applied to China, right. and Conversely, uh, a, a very uh, strong sense among a lot of Chinese, if you talk to them in the wake of the, of the parade, they can now confidently pronounce, yep, superpower. <laughs> I mean, uh, so it's, it's, yes, it's, it's a, a amazing how... term of a new... A new uh, a new. Well, that, that's what's different. The that's, what's the English phrase? It's uh, right. Uh, new, uh, new form of superpower relation. A new, a new great power, major power relationship. A new form. Yeah, but you know, you know, this is this is this formulation that basically. Yeah. I mean, this is addressed directly to the, the 
the the Thucydides trap. Yeah, that's right. The Thucydides, the Thucydides trap. Right. You know this idea that that a rising uh, power must necessarily disrupt an existing order, and right. it will lead inevitably to conflict. And you know, people have looked at at rising powers over the the history of of humanity since the time of you know the Peloponnesian War, right. and have I think in in most instances seen that there has been conflict. And so I mean, yeah, this but, is but very clearly you know, yeah, intended to steer clear. I, I, I think you have to uh, consider in that case the fact that we have nuclear capacities on both sides That's right. uh, That's right. and, and that makes it quite different uh, from all these uh, historic examples mm -hmm. there's, there's a because of this thing we mentioned the, the different the notion of Chinese exceptionalism that the language they will tend to use we tend to see this as a threat because as as Kaiser said we t we tend to think of our trajectory as being universal that these the values that we're moving towards China says no you know we're, we're exceptional and that makes it very easy for them to say no, there's no conflict here. There's no Thucydides trap. This is a win-win situation. We respect each other. We have mutual respect. We go our way, you go your way, and there's no problem. We just do what we can do in, in, in conjunction with right. each other, right? Different ideas of modernity, different yeah, paths to right. modernity. But do, you think, but do you think the problem is that the, the, we hear that in the West, but, but nobody buys it? Well, I mean, if, if, <laughs> do, I mean, it can, is it reasonable to buy it, or are they just being duplicitous? They're, they actually do want the same thing we do, which is... Well, become I, the next big big superpower, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 a bit difficult to uh, state that there is no conflict if you look at the Pacific, where, right. I mean, there is clearly a conflict of interest. I mean, the, 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 the question China is right. the South China Sea, East China Sea. The, the, the big question is how can you solve it? And China is trying to solve it by changing the facts on the ground uh, right. silently while uh, stating there is a peaceful rise. But I think that that's not a very clever strategy if you look at the reaction of neighboring countries who who seek right. their uh, military alliance with uh, with the US more and more do you believe they see it differently really or do you think they're just lying I mean they they, they claim they see they who what, can really they, second they, guess yeah. that I don't know I, I mean it's a serious question do you think that they really believe their historical account of of, of Chinese terror the, the, well I mean the Kaotung do they really do they really believe that or not do you think I, I think it's it's just a very big power seeking more power in the world, and, and I think that, that that is the way you have to analyze it. Um, and then there is, of course, a lot of rhetoric. I mean, if you listen to Xi Jinping in the United Nations, you know, it's it's all peaceful and coexistence and and right. and, and very nice. But I mean, that's diplomacy. Right. So when, on, on the subject of history, I mean, there's there's an idea that's been really kind of formulating in, in my mind for, for quite some time. Um, I'm also in the business of trying to explain, uh, or not, not, not to explain so much, as to urge people toward a more informed empathy about trying to, to be able to put yourself in those shoes. And, you know, as as you, as somebody who, who uh, holds Western values, I, I very much do. I'm, you know, as much a creature of the Enlightenment as, uh, you know, a, a, a non uh, Asian American is a white American. I, we, we're, I, I embrace those values. I, I like you know secular democracy. Uh, I like all the values of the Enlightenment. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, the 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 thing about empathy as a position is that you do not need to abdicate those values in order to understand how somebody else may may see the world. That's that's the, the great thing. I, I do do not. Uh, do not abate or surrender those values that I hold so dearly when I when I do that. It doesn't and, collapse into relativism. Right. It doesn't collapse immediately into relativism. So, uh, but one thing that, that that's become more and more obvious to me is that 
it's not just a lack of understanding on the part of Europeans and, and North Americans about China's history. It's a lack of understanding of their own history. I think that, that, that what people forget, what they, they, they fail to recognize, is the extent to which the values that we all hold are the product of an historic historical process that is not universal, that is actually very quite quite particular, that only happened in that one far western jagged little peninsula sticking off the Eurasian landmass and only happened in certain countries of that. I mean, it didn't happen in the Iberian Peninsula. It only it happened in France and in England and in the Netherlands and uh, you know, it, no, no, not Greece. It didn't happen. It it, it didn't. Ha- it happened only in a, in it mostly in the Protestant. Yeah. I'm talking about the Enlightenment. I'm talking about the Reformation, and you know, I'm talking about what what happened. But you're not talking about human rights here. I, I'm not. I, I ultimately am. I ultimately am because human rights. You know, when was when when what did the Declaration of the Rights of Man come out? I mean, that this this was something that very much was a product of the Enlightenment, and also the pro- now it happens that I I think that those values ultimately should be I have a normative field should be should be universally and, and they have uh, an appeal uh, they, universal. I do believe that they oh. they 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 do, but uh, as to how to get there, mm-hmm. we have to understand that you know we have come in the West, and this is this is really what I'm I'm getting to. We have come in the West to you know hold even more closely this idea that there is a goal directed history it's it's like the way that a lot of people think about evolution uh we're 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 not clear on the concept we think that you know eyes for example were in in inevitable uh, evolutionary right. development that they ought to have been that way no that's not how evolution works that's not how history works there isn't a t- in, in inherent teleology, teleology. there isn't mm-hmm. a goal directed directedness it baked into it i think Think rather, uh, we stumbled on something through uh, a, a lot of historical, you know, difficulties and 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 a lot of blood left on 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 the road to this. But um, there are a lot of different roads that that could have been chosen. The one that 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 the West walked ended up in a terrific place. I mean, I think uh, with a very very a great set of values, great set of political institutions, a great set of of economic ideas. Uh, but these are not the norm for the entire world and. To expect that the rest of the world can now cross that historical chasm with great ease is just simply unrealistic. And we need to, to think about getting from A to B and not, you know, I mean, you know, in, 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 in a way that doesn't leave a lot of blood on the road. Yeah. I mean, it's for sure that, uh, for instance, the concept of democracy is not bought everywhere. For, uh, if, if you take Iraq, uh, the U.S. has tried to impose it. It didn't work. Uh, at the same time, I think there is this universal appeal. If you ask a, a Chinese peasant if whether he wants democracy, I mean, there's so much propaganda against democracy that you probably would say no. But if you ask him, you know, do you want to have a say about uh, what is going on in your village? Uh, he would say yes. So which, right. so which is the w- right, which, which comes which down to democracy? Yeah, I was, you know, I was looking through your the index to your or the chapters for your book, and then just out of curiosity, I was looking through the index of a book by Zhang Weiwei, which I know Kaiser hates, but he's this <laughs> strident nationalist writer. You know, writes uh, in English. I mean, he's published in translated into English. I was looking at his index, and whereas hates not not a sufficient word. Hates not like a loathes <laughs> despises. <laughs> anyway, um, and and to to, to see. How, what kinds of framing or what kind of focuses is in the index, it's all on what I think was the Chinese are more interested in, not human rights, 
but on GDP, on development, on bringing people out of poverty, on mm -hmm. economic success, on economic progress. False dichotomy. False dichotomy, but that is their focus, right? If, if, you, if you mention human rights, they will mention we brought 500 million people out of poverty, right? Absolutely. Is that, yeah. But that's a valid, uh, at least that's a valid, uh, it may not be uh, binary that one can't come without the other, but still it's, it's at this stage it's of historical development, it's a valid point. It's, right? it's a very valid point. I mean, and, and I think there is not, maybe not enough recognition of that in, in, in Western countries, you know, that, that if you look at who has contributed most towards fighting poverty in the world, that, that is for sure, it's China. Right, you take China out of the equation, the poverty levels remain flat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> almost, yes, yeah. yes. So, so um, I totally agree with that, but then, uh, social, economic, human rights, as you, you mentioned, are, are very important. But it wouldn't mean that the political and the individual rights are not important. So, and I think this is kind of the nub of your book. Like, I mean, if I may, just like, uh, uh, maybe I'm I'm wrong, but I think that you see like a a, a, a dyad between, on the one hand, a kind of relativist approach. Uh, there, there are people that you talk to, you know, like Schmidt, for example, uh, and then uh, uh, somebody else who is quite kind of a universalist. And your inner dialogue through this book is about how do we engage China on the issue of human rights? That's a, that's a lot of a lot of what you, you end up talking about. I mean, where you seem to be most conflicted in the book is in this, right? Well, where where I'm. Uh, still struggling with, and, and as we uh, all ought to be, right. which I think is 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 also you know from an analytical point of view very different, difficult to 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 come up with some kind of uh, solution is this point, and um, well if if you take it to the political level, we have these politicians who go to China, uh, European politicians, they they express things about human rights behind closed curtains. That's what they s tell us. And we have to believe them. But um, we never see any results. The other way around, if, if they do it openly and you know the Chinese lose face, it, it might have an adverse impact on, for instance, cases of political prisoners they come up for. Uh, as um, you know, Chinese authorities really don't like uh, losing face in, mm. in, in public. So, so what is the right approach? You know, what's the right yardstick? What's the right measurement? I mean, is it efficacy? Is it is it what actually changes, or is it it you know uh, being consistent with our own values? Which which is more important, or is this again a false dichotomy? Well, you know? I, I think being consistent with your own values is is really important. You you now have an opposition in Europe between Angela Merkel. Mm -hmm. And David Cameron. That's right. Uh, David Cameron comes to China. He doesn't mention. He's rights embarrassing, right? At I all. Mean, <laughs> and 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 Angela the, the Merkel. Mark Zuckerman of England. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> and, I'm sorry, Zuckerberg. I'm glad I got his name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and Angela Merkel. I mean, she's she's consistent with herself, you know, with her uh, East German. No, she's from the and, East, right? And, yeah. and she's very much convinced about the importance of human rights. And despite all the importance. Germany attached to good economic relations with China, she always makes remarks about it. And yet efficacy for me seems like a, a, a very important measure. I, 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 I think that, um, you know, it's one thing 
to you know be able to pat yourself on the back and say you know I stood up that I you know I I, I can look the the satisfying purity of indignation that's what Obama called it it's uh, it's, yeah, yeah. it's 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 a it's it's there is something you know but you know if if browbeating if that approach yields no results or uses yields counter you know counterproductive uh, uh, Im- Im- impact uh is that the right thing? I mean, do we continue to do this? It's just absolutely not. I, I think you have to do it cleverly. I, I spoke to a, a very left-wing green politician uh, in Germany, and and she she was very irritated by fellow politicians who just had these declarations about human rights in China all the time. You know, where she knew that the uh, because she knew something about China, she knew that the effect on the the people in prison was adverse. So you. It, it was it's reflected good on the on the politician but not on the right. on the prisoner yeah you use Ai Weiwei throughout the book as just sort of an example of what one approach although it's interesting to see how he is moderated recently if you've, if you've, if you've seen uh, yeah I suspect some kind of deal is struck there I don't know why something happened behind hmm. the scenes I believe yeah I, 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 I don't really know no, what, no, what no, happened I, I have a, just a quick question that I don't want to get forget about as a journalist it seems like there's there's a problem. A lot of what we're talking about is is the domain of academia. These are things you write books about that are large in scope, historical scope. But as a journalist, you're dealing with isolated cases. You're dealing with uh, maybe even just incidents uh, that are only of current events interest. You tell a story that's supposed to be mostly you know factual. Get the story get the story out. There isn't much leeway to talk about these larger issues. How how as a journalist. Do you, or as a journalist, should push back or try to present a more nuanced narrative in the context of journalism, knowing what we know about the fact that it's a market product, for example? How do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, the the nice thing about writing this book, I was not confined to any space, and uh, I could write uh, right. one hundred twenty. Well, you're writing meta journalism <laughs> here, yeah. right? right yeah. yeah. So um, that gave me a, a lot of liberty and also in-depth knowledge of, of uh, the subject. And uh, I think that is really important, you know, for journalists uh, to, to not just to produce this small story, but try to see the bigger picture. And, and um, I think then you get some kind of quality to your journalism, which you eventually need to get this better mutual understanding which we which we all crave for can you only do that by building up a body of work article article after article or is there some other way to accomplish this no i think you have to do it that way you have to specialize and consistently uh devote your time to this particular subject and see it from all different angles Mm. for instance i just come from korea and you know the way they look at china is again different from Mm my European perspective so I understand it even you know we're better or differently again is there a second book in the works now working looking at, <laughs> at Southeast Asia or, or, or other East Asian and Southeast Asian neighbors of China and how they view it yeah I, I, I don't know yet but I'm very happy that the first book is there so <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, the other issue that I think maybe is um, you know you, you start off uh, you know, you 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 start here uh, with asking the question about you know what what should then countries like the United States do? Should their stance, their posture toward China, be more assertive, be more aggressive, tougher? Uh, and in the end, you kind of conclude that no, it, 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 that kind of a, a, a more 
uh, a tough posture, a, a tough stance, you know, by the U.S. and its Western allies would only increase Chinese nationalism that would spark, you know, an actual second Cold War. Um, can you walk us through your thinking on that? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, the developments in recent years are quite negative, in my view. If you compare it to wh when I started the research, th there was the Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao uh, era, and relations were not very good, but not very bad either. And I think due to uh, the question of the Pacific and cybersecurity, um, the whole espionage uh, thing, I mean, the tensions have increased. You see increasing frustration, uh, even uh, with Obama, who, who was quite uh, balanced uh, for a long time, but now announcing TPP, he said that uh, it, it, it was also a move, you know, not to have a world where China uh, writes the rules. Uh, so so um, the, 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 the tendency is going towards a more uh, containment of China and uh, a Cold War uh, policy. And I think, you know, I can't see any advantage of that for both parties. I mean, first of all, and, and that was also one of the reasons to write the book, is, you know, we, we have some common problems which we we have to solve and the chance of for instance solving the climate crisis is is becoming less if if you have these two blocks uh, opposing each other and um, secondly in the, in the in the economic uh, sphere i think uh, there is very much and uh, the, the inter interdependency has grown all over the years so much that that uh, you can't compare it to the soviet union uh, any longer uh, you know, the Soviet Union, you could contain because uh, economically you, know, you, you, you were not, exactly, not uh, right. dependent. And, and now the U.S. and Europe would shoot in, in their own foot in a very big way That's right. if, if they start to contain China. And yet containment is, is, is part of the language with which uh, the Chinese foreign policy, the Chinese foreign policy community, and especially the Chinese military community, sees a, a American, especially American uh, action. They, they posit that there is this sort of project of liberal hegemonism this attempt to to um, to thwart China's rise in some way and I, I can't help but notice that uh, I mean again this is this is me you know stepping out of my own value perspective and 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 trying to see how Beijing sees things through its window uh, that uh, looks like there, there have been a lot of, of essays written recently about uh, the the Chinese state and its stepped up repression. They, they look at you know this document number nine. They look at the the moves in recent years against uh, the the creep of Western values into uh, academia. They look at uh, the crackdown on NGOs and on rights lawyers and things like that. And often this is just explained uh, without reference to the external world, but only within the, the framework of Chinese politics. That this is a, a an increasingly paranoid, increasingly uh, insecure state, and that its fear is of its own people, where uh, I think that the way that Beijing would, would frame this, and I think that there's, it's, there's, it's not without some merit, so this argument is not without entirely without merit, that they would say, look what's happening in, in the world. There, there is this project of liberal hegemonism. It's not necessarily of the, uh, the um, neoconservative stripe of, of overt, you know, Pre preempt the preemption doctrine and, and regime change per se, but 
uh, it's the left's counter to that. It's the left's uh, counterpart to that, which is, um, you know, using NGOs, using free press, using internet freedom, using all of these uh, these tools, clipping yan bian. But but it's it but it's but it's a more sinister version of clipping yan bian that that culminates in bu clipping yan bian, like. Right. Things like the Arab Spring, they they would see the Arab Spring as the the culmination of this color revolutions, you know, prior to that. But I can't help but notice that between September 11th, 2001 uh, and 2008, there was this uh, period of a kind of of, of, of very relaxed U.S.-China relations because, of course, the U.S. had enlisted China in this global war on terror. And, you know, it had laid off and stopped and its focus was elsewhere. And during that time, Internet censorship wasn't it was bad, but not so bad. There were, you know, NGOs didn't exactly flourish, but they weren't suffering, you know, repression either. Uh, rights lawyers were able to do some of their work there. And then, you know, the, the Chinese human rights record wasn't wasn't so bad. Uh, I can't help but see these two things as somehow interlinked. The foreign policy environment, the, the international environment, and it's not just a matter of, of increased swagger and bellicosity on the part of Beijing uh, that, that, that stimulated this, but it's also things like you know the pivot to Asia. Mm-hmm. It's also this you know. Uh, so, I, I, yeah. Well, it's 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 a very interesting analysis. I don't know whether cause and effect is is. That right, hard clear, to, hard to and, 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 and right. I, I think if if you want to explain um, the way the domestic situation has evolved, uh, I don't know how important this this foreign context uh, really is. I I, I would start uh, by the person of Xi Jinping and 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 uh, his wish that the party will survive, uh, and uh, therefore the party has to have all the ground possible and that the civil society uh, should uh, decrease and uh, become less important. I think that, that, that is the, for me, that is the starting point. And then they can find arguments in these, these uh, external developments. Mm. Uh, but uh, I, you know, to my feeling, it's, it's, it's not the, the essence of, of uh, the last uh, three years. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that. Yeah, I would say again, Xi Jinping also seem, does seem to mark. It could be a coincidence, but he came around the same time, post two thousand and eight, although a few years after that. It, it seems to me that this this has become at least increasingly marked during Xi Jinping's regime, or if that's the right word. Mm. Well, that's that's a, a, a wonderful topic for another <laughs> an, another another podcast. But uh, we're uh, coming up here on, on time. I think it's probably uh, t- let's 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 make sure that everyone knows the title of of the book once again. Uh, it, it's it's called China and the West: Hope and Fear in the Age of Asia by Foka Obema. Uh, and we want to thank you very much for taking the time to come on and now move on to our. You'll stay in and make a recommendation with us. I hope. Uh, David, what is your recommendation for the week? Yeah, uh, moving <laughs> to sort of a, a macro level from, from the messy daily political situation to the sort of uh, looking at us as a human race, I've been reading uh, lately a book called Sapiens by someone named Yuval Noah Harari. Mm-hmm. And what it is is just the history of Homo sapiens from the very beginning to the present time, 
a very detailed and it's an evolutionary account, obviously, and uh, taking into account the sorts of there's been a lot of interest lately because of this new this, discovery, this of, new of, discovery of the Homo Nelidi or whatever, Nelidi, and also the Homo Florensis or whatever. There's yeah. been several different types of Florensis Homo was discovered in, yeah, in Indonesia, right? and but it's no, it's a very different. It's a very interesting book that goes through the the cognitive history to show how. We developed some of these cognitive capabilities and including moral and um, social uh, characteristics of our particular species I of ape. I love this kind of book. So yeah, yeah it's, this, a, this, it's this. a great book that very, uh, very much detailed, very chronological. And uh, if you're a political scientist, I think it makes an interesting reading because it tells us more about the roots of these messy sort of human behaviors that we've been talking about. Wow, great! Um, and you'll you'll make sure that you get, get our intern Ben the uh, the correct spelling of this That's name. That's the problem. So, yes. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Foka, what do you have for us? Well, the book I would recommend is is maybe an, a, a bit old one, but I think for Chinese readers, still very interesting. The Circle by David Eggers, mm, uh, mm. which I just read, and. Um, uh, a couple of months later, I stumbled across a very interesting Chinese story, which is about the social credit system. Uh, I don't know whether you know about that. Yeah, of course. I mean, we've been debating this hotly with a lot of people of uh, late. I mean, because, you know, our, our mutual friend, uh, Rochier, I, mean, I can't keep saying his name. Kramer. Kramer, yeah. Rochier, Kramer. Right. Because he wrote, you know, he translated that whole thing. I, I think that there's been a lot of misunderstanding about what this actually is. Okay. But, but. Uh, well, as far as I understand it, it's, it's rating your behavior, uh, giving your a certain, as, as a uh, civilian, a certain uh, number of points. And that would be then inv important for not only your credit, but also for getting Correct. housing, getting jobs, whatever. Uh, it's It's kind of scary and uh, uh, it gives you an idea of a, a totalitarian approach but at the same time it's interesting to see that in the west you know it's it's similar developments take place it's on, only not with the state involved but just companies well, the thing is we don't know that there's any state involvement in this we have a document that, that in, in Roger, china you mean yeah in china we, yeah. we don't know that there's any state involvement we know that there's this document and we know that there are these systems that have been implemented by Alibaba and by Tencent, which may have nothing whatsoever to do with the other. There's no no uh, there, there's no clear linkage between the two. Yeah. And okay. I, I mean, until somebody shows me evidence that there is, I, I I'm not going to assume that there is. Okay. Okay. Right. Um, but but it's it's I think it's a, it's an interesting story, and I'm gonna continue to follow it closely. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the circle. The circle, Dave right? Dave Eggers, is, is, right? Is, is Dave Eggers, really a, a staggering nice, work, nice of, reading, oh, yeah. a, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, and uh, got a number of other novels. A brilliant writer, not kind of an uneven, but but generally pretty pretty enjoyable writer for me. Yeah. And and the circle is about sort of a dystopian social network, right? a, a Google like. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I, I really ought to read that. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Laboring as I do in. You the belly be the first of the reader beast. of this yeah, book. I should, absolutely. <laughs> no, I, it's been on my list for a long time. I don't know how I haven't gotten around to it, oh, but okay. I, I have meant to read it. Um, my recommendation, also a book. I mean, we're all going with books this time, but um, 
okay, so people who listen to this podcast know that I've been working my way through the Will and Ariel Durant uh, Story of Civilization series. And now I'm on volume 10, which is so far the best one. It's called Rousseau and Revolution. Uh, this one actually won a Pulitzer for general nonfiction by, you know, for Will and Ariel Durant. Uh, everyone's parents have these, um, this, this you know, enormous, set. yeah, 12, I think 12 volume set. Uh, it, it's it, uh, 11 or 12 volumes, but it's it's an amazing bit of piece of writing that, that somebody could have sustained this level of, of brilliance acro- across that many you know, millions and millions of words. Uh, it's the erudition, the the, the 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 narrative style, the 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 verve with which this is told. Um, you know, and it, it, this one covers basically you know the salonniers, the philosophes in 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 Paris in the mid eighteenth century. You know, it covers a lot of the same ground as as chapter nine, uh, volume nine before it, which is the age of Voltaire. But this you know looks at Jean Jacques Rousseau, who I've come to have a an abiding loathing of. I really just cannot stand the man, um, or or his works. You know, uh, but it also um, you know it's it. it Great we chapters on anyway. Frederick the Great. No, no, absolutely. Uh, no, because I, I think that that Rousseau is just so important to to who we are as people. I mean, you know, the, to uh, the 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 romantic uh, response to the Enlightenment. I think is 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 in, incredibly important. But it's it's uh, it's an amazing book. Um, you know, it it, it covers uh, the whole Catholic South. It covers the Islamic East. Uh, it it looks at, of course, all the countries of the Protestant North. And um, in the whole prelude up to 1789, uh, and so you're listening to it as an audio book. I right? am listening to it that's, as an audio. That's book. a lot of reading of millions and millions of words, too. It is. Stefan Rudnicki. Listen to his readings of it. He's I hope just. He has a lot of supply of cough drops. He does. He, I mean, his voice is great. It's just his 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 ability to read, and I mean, you know, his pronunciations of of uh, you know a lot of different languages of French and of Spanish and of of. of are, are pretty admirable for somebody who's obviously, you know, a stolid American. But um, great one. I'm looking forward to the next one, which is The Age of Napoleon, which I, I, I hope to as well. So I, I like to read these um, in, audio, in audio, but I, I'm, uh, but also to, to have them in text so that I can kind of go back and forth between. So if it's too noisy to listen, like on the subway, uh, I can read. And if, I, if, it's, um, if I'm driving or if I'm in a, a cab, I can listen. Or if I don't want to bother my wife at night with having a light on while I'm reading. Anyway, uh, thanks, guys. Okay. Thanks. It was Thank a you. great, great, great discussion, and uh, I highly recommend the book. Um, I think I have a copy of it. It's signed to me, but maybe we can finagle another copy of it to give away to one lucky reader. If we can get you to, to, to part with the one copy. Will you assent to that, Foka? <laughs> yes? yes? Okay, good, very good. So then we will. We'll I'll, I'll announce some kind of contest-like device whereby we will reward somebody with, with a copy of this book. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care.